You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Philippians is, is an interesting book because we see the emotion of Paul and the heart of Paul, I guess you could say. In some ways, the Philippian church, the church at Philippi, as many would call it, is one of perhaps Paul's favorite congregations. And so we're going to take the next four weeks to look and see what Paul writes at the end of his life to one of his favorite places of ministry. And there's some beautiful things in here. We're going to look in four dynamics, and I'm just going to highlight these for us real quick to sort of set the tone of what you have to look forward to as we work our way through Philippians. But we're going to look at a life in Christ, Philippians, life in Christ, Christian living. Chapter 1, we're going to look at life's purpose, the purpose God has for us. Chapter 2, we'll look at life's pattern. We'll look at the pattern that God sets for us. Chapter 3, we'll look at life's prize. We'll look at the things that God has promised us. And then the last week's going to be a great week because we're going to look at life's power. And we're going to look at, amen, the power of the Holy Spirit in a Christian life. And this is going to be wonderful, amen, as we work our way through here. So let's grab the book of Philippians and we'll begin uh, in chapter 1. And tonight we are going to cover, amen, chapter 1 of the book of Philippians here. I want to open up before we do with a little introduction and just set the stage, the context for us. And so by doing that, if you will, take your Bible and let's turn to the book of Acts chapter number 16. Acts chapter number 16. The church at Philippi was founded in a supernatural way. And I still believe, amen, in the supernatural move of the Holy Ghost. In the work of the Holy Ghost. Do I have any believers on Wednesday night? And so this is probably one of the reasons that it is so near and dear to the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter number 16, we go to verse number 8, and it tells us, And they passing by, Messiah came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we... Devoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. This is the narrative, the story where in the book of Acts, Luke writes and talks about how God appears in a vision and a dream to God. And says, I want you to come preach the gospel in Macedonia. We need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this begins the great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. It was all started from this. And so Paul sets out and he goes to Philippi. And there he establishes... And he founds the church, the work, supernatural work. Thank God for men and women who are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Thank God for men and women who are sensitive 
to the ministering and the speaking of the Holy Ghost. I think in this last days that if we are going to be apostolic, we not only must have the infilling of the Holy Ghost like they did in Acts chapter 2, evidence with speaking in other tongues, but we need to be sensitive enough that if God desires to speak to us, amen, come on anybody, in visions and in dreams, we are ready to receive what God is saying to us. How many in here believe, amen, that God still speaks in visions and dreams? I could testify in my life some things very close and dear that I have not shared with many, few if at all, times that God has spoken to me in supernatural ways. Amen. But this is the story. And so from this, we see as Paul's writing his endearment to the church, perhaps is because God not only did a work at the very beginning with the vision, but supernatural, he continues to establish marvelously. Paul and Silas go to Philippi and there in their brief stay, they minister. And we see three individuals, unique individuals in this church. This church does not look like the church at Jerusalem. It is absolutely unique. And we'll come to that. Oh, we're here now. Thank you. Church of Philippi. And the first thing we see at the church of Philippi is that there are three unique individuals. One being an Asian businesswoman named Lydia, whom God saves from Judaism in Acts chapter 16. We also see a Greek soothsayer who God saved from being a... uh, Demon worshiper, I guess you could say in that sense from Acts chapter 16. And then also in that same chapter, we see a Roman jailer whom God saves from the worship of Caesar. And so this is a Gentile church. People of very different backgrounds. Not steeped in the tradition necessarily of the word. Not uh, 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 compliant to Christian culture. Totally foreign concept come in, and yet God builds and establishes a great revival. This is the first church in in a European city to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. The author of the book is, of course, the Apostle Paul. And when he picks up the pen, he is at this time a prisoner in Rome. On his fourth trip, he is taken captive and brought to Rome and where he is bound, and he is relegated to a house. He's allowed to live in a house, but there in that place he is chained to Roman guards, and he is permitted a pen and permitted visitors, and he picks up his pen and he begins to write. And Paul would write several epistles, but he writes here at the end of his life. We know from Rome that Paul would go on and he would become a martyr for the early church. It's in this place that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. When he's in prison there, the church loves him so much that the Bible tells us that they took up a love offering and they send it to him and they sent him blessings. And of course, he acknowledges these things here. We could go on, but I'll highlight the three main words of this epistle. And these tell us something of the attitude and the spirit that Paul has when he writes. So here is Paul writing to some of his favorite people, I guess you could say, or those that he is the most endeared to at the end of his life. And the three words that Paul constantly uses, number one, the first word he uses the most 
is the word Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And he uses that word some 70 times in this short epistle of four chapters. The second word that he uses predominantly is the word joy, the word joy. And there's a powerful message in this, as we'll see through every chapter. He constantly talks about the joy of God that's in his heart. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter what season you're going through in life, you can still have joy. And I thank God for that. And the final word that he mentions is unique. He mentions it 12 times, and that is the word mind. And so Paul is taking note of the mind. He'll speak of our mind. He'll speak of his mind, in his mind, and he'll speak of the mind of Christ. And so we see how we think is very important. And what we think is very important. We see that having joy, amen, was the posture that Paul took in his spiritual life at the end. And we thank God for that. And we see that the primary focus in everything is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so I don't know about you, but I'm excited to get in to this passage. Let's clap clap our hands unto the Lord tonight and thank God for his word. Amen. So turn with me, if you will, to chapter 1, and we will begin with chapter 1. Chapter 1 is life's purpose. Life's purpose. The purpose that God gives to us is a focused mind in Christ. This is our purpose. This is why we were created. This is the whole of our being. And Paul does not go in a defense or some kind of apologetic statement for the purpose being such. He's talking to those whom he assumes already have that established, and he just highlights life's purpose. If we were going to lift a key verse from this passage, it would be chapter 1 and verse 21, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Folks, this is a good motto to take. Maybe in the next week we can just make this our motto until next Wednesday. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We look at chapter number one and we're going to divide it into three separate segments. Three separate segments as we go to chapter number one. So let's begin, if we will, and we'll go through verse by verse in verse one. Paul and Timotheus the servant of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul opens up this epistle. It sounds familiar because he would follow this pattern many times in other epistles. But how... A letter is addressed. How it opens says so much about the person that's speaking, about the people that they are writing to, and about the intent of their heart. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, I'm coming with my brother Timothy. We are servants. We are ministers of Jesus Christ to the saints, amen, of Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops, and 
the deacons. Paul sees himself as a minister. He sees himself as a servant in the kingdom of God. Can I tell you, it's something beautiful. In God's kingdom, we do not build ourselves up above one another. But Christ said, let the greatest among you be the servant of all. There is no room in the church for hierarchy. There is no room in the church, amen, for status. There is no room in the church for different social class. We are all level at the foot of the cross. And if we are going to be anybody, we must first understand that we are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are servants one toward another. This was the posture. This was the attitude, the spirit that Paul would walk into every place. It was a bold thing that he would declare. Paul acknowledges here that there are bishops and deacons. That word bishop can also be translated in other places. It is as overseers, those who look over portions, over flocks, over congregations, over constituents. There are many who are critical of the early church, and they would say that bishops and deacons and, and structure within the body of Christ did not come about until the post-apostolic uh, early founding fathers that were after the original apostles. But here we see the apostle Paul himself already, as if it was commonplace, if it was understood that there were already at this time bishops and deacons, people that were already at work in the church. It is uh, akin to what some religious sects among Judaism even would operate under. The Essenes, they had different uh, social structures. And this was not about hierarchy, but this was about government. This was about efficiency and about serving the kingdom of God. And so there were bishops, there were overseers, and there were deacons that were already established in the congregation of church. So if there's anybody in this modern era that wants to revisit the age-old argument that says, I don't need a pastor, I don't need an overseer, we don't need a deacon, everybody's the same at the foot of the cross, that's absolutely right. We are the same at the foot of the cross. We're all servants at the kingdom of God, but God established these things for the benefit of the church. And so Paul testifies to that right off the bat. And he said, here are these overseers. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that as I was growing up, there were overseers. Somebody, amen, to make sure that the lights were on and the bills got paid and the heat was on. Somebody say, praise the Lord. And the toilets got clean. Somebody say, hallelujah. And that the word of God was preached and that the word of God was taught. We thank God for that. And then the other word that they used, if you'll go back to verse 1, is Deacon, 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 deacons in the church. These were people that were not the pastor, people that were not the overseers, people that were not necessarily, amen, but uh, 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 in spiritual leadership, but they saw to the business of the kingdom of God, the things of God. And so in a modern day, uh, most churches, most congregations have 
a deacon's board or, or board of directors or whatever you want to call it that are responsible to see to the business of the church. And we thank God for that. The word deacon comes from an old word that is translated. That means literally to stir up the dust. And it presents the picture of one who is moving so rapidly through the dusty lanes of the villages of Palestine that to discharge their duties, their feet kick up the dust as they go. The point is, is that the deacons were not to be people that were loitering. This was not a position, amen, of royalty, but this was a position of service, of being about the kingdom of God. That's why we encourage, amen, ministry in the kingdom of God. If you have not yet found a place to serve in the kingdom of God, can I tell you there is great joy that comes Amen. From putting your hand to the plow and working. It can be as little and as simple as cleaning. It can be as little and minute as helping stock certain things or help in certain ways. But we are about about serving in the kingdom of God. And so Paul opens up with this. He goes on. And I like this in verse number 2. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is something that would be lost upon our generation. But if you'll pay special note, when you go back and read in the Old Testament, you will see many times the address at the beginning of certain books would be, they would name themselves and then they would call themselves a servant of Jesus Christ. Moses would do it. Joshua would do it. And others. And they would open up and they would say a servant rather of Jehovah. They called themselves a servant of Jehovah. Jehovah or Yahweh being the name of Almighty God. The I am that I am that appeared to Moses. That was the creator of the universe. Make no mistake. Paul was not bringing a new religion. He was not bringing a new concept. But he identified with the Old Testament prophets that would say, I, Joshua, am a servant of Jehovah. I, Moses, am a servant of the Lord Almighty. And Paul replaces the name of the prophet. Amen with his name. And he replaces the name of Jehovah with the name of Jesus Christ. Because he's saying, I also am a servant. And Jesus Christ is Jehovah of the Old Testament that has become our salvation. I think we ought to pause right there and clap our hands unto the Lord. Amen, because God has revealed himself fully and completely in the person, amen, of Jesus Christ. And so Paul opens up the epistle before he gets into it and says, I just want to let you know some things. I'm a servant of that same God, amen, that has no beginning and has no ending, and his name is Jesus. Somebody say that name. Jesus, hallelujah, and we thank God that we are privileged to know that. He goes on in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day unto now. Paul talks about this great fellowship. 
There's a great fellowship that God has given him, that God has given us. And Paul says, I'm thankful. I make requests. I pray for you with joy. I'm happy. I'm excited that you are in the Lord's service. And he said, from the very first day unto now. I'm going to tell you, if you have ever witnessed to someone and talked to someone or invited somebody to church or given someone a Bible study, and they are serving God today, would you lift your hand? Amen. You've talked to somebody, you prayed for somebody, you spoke to somebody. Can I tell you, there is nothing, amen, like seeing somebody come in and find. I love it when you see the light bulb go on and they say, I see it, I get it. I need the Holy Ghost for myself, or I need to be baptized in Jesus' name, or, or man, I, I, I've got to give my life to the Lord. I need to repent of my sins. Yes, yes, there's, there's such a joy for that. And when somebody does that, there is something inside of your heart. How many, you still think about them, you pray for them, you rejoice over them, you thank God for them. And there's this desire in your heart that you want to see them be blessed, You want to see them go on, and this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, there's a great fellowship that God has brought me. And oh man, I am so blessed by your fellowship. So here he's talking to people that he witnessed to, that he preached to, that he taught, that he prayed for. He saw miracles. He saw things happen in their life. And now, even though he's gone on, there is a church in the city of Philippi that is not only praising God and worshiping the Lord, but the church is strong enough that several times on his missionary journey, this very church would take up missions offerings. Get this. Missions offerings and send them to Paul and send them to cities and say, hey, we want to be a blessing. We want to be a blessing for what God is doing over there. And so the fruit of his labors just continue on. And so here he's talking. He's saying, I pray for you from that day until now. It's with joy in my heart. And then he goes on and, and, he, and he's talking about a great fellowship. And I love this principle that he gives us here, this truth. Being confident, he said, being confident. This is why he had joy. This is why he had faith about them. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but there was a peace and a confidence that Paul had. He said, when I preached to you, when I taught you, when I prayed for you, God did a work and I have a confidence that goes beyond my ministry and it's in the Lord that if God ever touched you, if God ever spoke to you, if God ever blessed you, amen, if God ever planted a seed in your heart, he didn't do that just to fill time, but he did it to bring about a great purpose in your life. Can I tell somebody tonight, if God has ever blessed you, if God has ever anointed you, if God has ever touched you with the power of the Holy Ghost, then he still desires to do the work that he started in you. Oh, we ought to thank God right now. Amen. That God still, amen, fulfilling his purpose in our life. Hallelujah. 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 
I hasten to say this, but Brandy, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss Harrison and Brandy and Selah and Roman and Samuel. But aren't we thankful for what God has done in their life and what God is continuing to do in their life? It is not an accident. I don't believe God makes mistakes. I don't believe God makes any accidents. But God knows what lies before us. And, and, and as they uh, transition from here over to South Korea, amen, you ought to take every moment that you get with that family, amen, to bless them, to love them, uphold them in prayer. They are going, amen, into some interesting places in South Korea. But God knew this day was coming before he even spoke you into existence. And so God has it already set out. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful. I don't know what tomorrow holds in my life or yours. But I know that God is going to fulfill his purpose and his promise if we'll let him. And this is the great confidence that Paul has. He said, look, I can go on in life. I can be in a, in a prison in Rome. I can be looking at sudden death. I can be looking at, at, at persecution, and I'm not worried because God is bigger than a personality, and God will continue on the work. Can I tell you, that's how I feel about this church. That's how I feel. That's, I hope that's how you feel about this church. I hope that's how you feel about your family. I'm going to raise them right. I'm, I'm going to do my job to put them in the house of God when the doors are open, to position them. And if God works in their life, I've got confidence that God is going to finish what God starts. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I don't believe God ever just starts something without the intention of finishing it. And then he goes on here and we see what the fellowship means to Paul. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart... In so much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I longed after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Amen. Another translation, the MEV says it this way. For God is my witness, how I longed after you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And so I desired, this, this was how they would describe in this ancient times the seat of their emotions. But the bowels, they'd speak, it'd like be us saying, from the bottom of my heart, from the depth of my heart. And he says, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So let's go back to the slide and we'll see here. Not only did Paul talk about the great fellowship and let us know that God completes what he begins, but he tells us what this fellowship means to him. And that's this. If you look here, we see three things. We see that number one, this fellowship was in Paul's mind. He starts off in verse 7, and he says, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all. He says, You are in my mind. You are in my thoughts. The fellowship of the body of Christ, the work of God, is in my mind. The next thing he goes on, he says, He says, Because I have you all in my heart. Not only was it in the mind of Paul, but the fellowship 
was in the heart of Paul. It was his affection. It was his desire. Can I tell you that as we grow in Christ, life in Christ, church is not just a place we go to receive spiritual handouts, but the body of Christ and the people of God, amen, the fellowship, makes its way into our mind and in our thoughts. It's more than just a place, but now it's something that's in our mind. And then it goes beyond being just in our mind and thinking about people and those people to being in our heart. We have an affection for the people of God. Now, how many know the church is not perfect? The gyms are packed this week with unperfect people. Nobody says, I'm not going to that gym. Nobody perfect in there. That's why people are in the gym. Because they're acknowledging their imperfections, their need for that. That's why we come to church. We need God. But beyond that, we're not looking for perfect people. There is something inside of a heart that says, hey, hey, you're, you're, you're trying to do the same thing I'm doing. You're trying to make it to the same place I'm making it. You're trying to live the same life I'm, I'm living. And I love you for that. I, I want to strengthen you. I want to support. I want to come alongside you. I need you and you need me. And so the body of Christ is in our mind, but then the body of Christ is in our heart. Can I tell you, this is a good time to evaluate ourselves and say, hey, is the church what's in my mind? When I think of, hey, go having a good time, are we still thinking about going to the bar? Are we still thinking about going out to the places in the world? Are we thinking about all the people at work? Or are we thinking, hey, there's some, I want to be around some good Holy Spirit filled believers. I want to be around some people that love the Lord also. Is there something inside of a heart that is endeared to those individuals? And then the fellowship not only is in his mind, not only is in his heart, but then the fellowship, he says, and this is where the great testimony really lies, the fellowship is in his prayer. And in verse 9, he says, and this I pray. And Paul lets us know. He says in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. He lets us know that the fellowship is in prayer. Can I tell you, when you know that you have really endeared yourself not only to God but to the body of Christ is when you'll take time to pray for one another. And that's why we take so much time here to pray. We take so much time to pray. We take time in our services to pray for the sick. We take time to pause and say, hey, is there anybody in here that needs prayer? When we pause, we're not just filling space. We're giving time. I, Somebody could say, well, hey, you know, I, I don't want to go down there because I don't want anybody to think there's anything, there's, there's, uh, there's anything wrong with me. Well, can I tell you, I, I haven't met anybody yet that's never not had anything wrong with him. And, and, and some of us sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll say, I don't want anybody to think there's ever anything wrong with me. No, Paul even said, hey, sometimes I'm down here saying, hey, I need your prayer. Hey, would you come lay hands on me? I need all the Holy Ghost I can get. Whether it's a situation in your body, whether it's a situation in your life, whether it's a situation on the job, in your family, whatever. Paul says, I'm going to pray for you. When you'll take time to pause and not just pray for yourself. Oh, we're easy to pray for ourselves, amen? We're quick to pray for ourselves. But when you'll actually pause to say, hey, I'm praying for you. And can I tell you, sometimes in my life, 
I can feel the prayers of someone else. There have been days for years now where I'll, I'll be going and I won't even be thinking about my mind's busy with, with the busyness of life and work and the ministry and whatever. And, I won't, and all of a sudden, I'll just feel something in the Holy Spirit. And I'll say, wow, God, I don't, I don't know where that's coming from, but whoever is praying for me right now, <laughs> give them an extra blessing because I, I'm thankful for that. And people say, hey, I was praying for you last week. And I said, when was that? Yeah, you know what? I felt that. I really felt that. You say, you're crazy. That's right. <laughs> but you know what? There's been times where I picked up the phone and just say, hey, you've just been on my heart today and I'm praying for you and I'm praying for your strength and I'm praying that God will bless you. There's been times where I said, hey, I, I, I was praying for you and I felt so impressed in my spirit to let you know that God has something for you. Don't quit. And they'll say, hey, you don't know what that means. How many times have people text you or called you and said, hey, I'm praying for you. And it was right at the right moment. Said, man, I needed that in my heart. Amen. The body of Christ, it's got to be more than just the church. Can I tell you, CTK, it's got to be more than just another geographical location where people can pull up a pen and go to church and worship God and feel their own needs and desires. But it's, it needs to be a place where the fellowship is in our mind. Is this all right? In our heart and in our prayer and say, hey, I'm praying for you. And I know you're praying for me. I feel the prayers. I thank God every time somebody in this congregation says, hey, pastor, I'm praying for you. You keep on. You keep doing it. I'm praying for you. Can I tell you, that means more. Amen. The currency of prayer goes way farther than any silver or gold you could ever, amen, pass out on this earth when we'll pray for one another, when we love one another in that sense. And that was the desire of Paul. Brother Sellers preached Sunday night on the pastor's prayer. We go on in verse 12, and he says, but I would Ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear." Paul goes from talking about the great fellowship in chapter 1 to talking about the great advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1 verses 12 through 26, he's going to talk about how the gospel has been furthered, advanced. And the three ways that it's advanced is this, <laughs> through chains, through critics, and through crisis. See, sometimes the gospel does not advance until we have some spiritual struggles. So if you're sitting there saying, hey, why is all this stuff against me? Maybe it's because you're doing something right. Maybe it's because you're, you're, you're getting something right and now everything's coming against you. Paul said, look, I'm in chains, I'm in prison. And here I am, I'm bound. This does not seem like the likely place for me to fulfill my ministry. But can I tell you, Paul, the church at Philippi is not a likely church anyway. God spoke to you through a vision. 
God picked up three random Gentiles that had weird backgrounds, brought them together to start the revival. And now, Paul, you are pastoring them from a prison in Rome, chained to two soldiers on either side. There is nothing about this that is ordinary, but God is advancing the kingdom. And sometimes it's in the least comfortable or opportune things that we think that God is doing the most work. And so when we think, well, it's got to be like this and it's got to be like that and it's got to be like that, can I tell you, we need to just let God be God <laughs> and us be the church. Is this all right? If life seems a little chaos, if life seems like it's not working out the way you thought it, but you're still living for God and you still have victory in the Holy Ghost, just trust in God because he can use where you're at to make it better. And this was Paul's testimony. He said, I'm in prison. He said, but you know what? Because I'm in prison, I may not have liberty to go out and preach, but you know what this has done? This has caused every other person that was timid and afraid to say, if Paul could be sitting in prison, then who am I that I shouldn't preach the gospel? And he said, they're doing it all the more bold. They're out there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's be clear. I'm not praying to go to prison tonight. But if there was something that could happen <laughs> that would cause ordinary saints on a pew to say, hey, I'm going to do something drastic. I'm going to step out of the comfort zone and I'm going to let God use me. Maybe it would be to the advantage of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we see in the history of the church that every time persecution came, amen, the devil paid for it. Through chains, through critics, verses 15 through 18, some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. You, you wouldn't believe this, but the church at Rome that Paul had been ministering to, now he's there, and some came and visited him, but there were others that neglected him, and there were others who were envious of him. There were those who were jealous of him. There were those that were condemning of him. Well, you see what kind of Paul's uh, uh, ministry Paul has here. He's landed himself in prison. What kind of effectiveness does, does he have now? And Paul said, so some are out of envy and strife preaching the gospel, some out of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. He said, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then notwithstanding every way? He's saying, hey, I don't care. I'm not worried. You know what? Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being preached. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. And where the gospel is preached, he says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Hallelujah. I ought to thank God every time the gospel message is being preached. Whatever is going on, thank God for the gospel message being preached. I thank God for every measure of truth that's being spread around our community and our kingdom. There may be people that don't have the fullness of truth and don't have all the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There may be people who have not yet come to the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. They may be in their home praying at night saying, God, show yourself to me. They may be doing just like uh, the centurion Cornelius was or just like the disciples at Ephesus were doing. I thank God for that. Preach the gospel, but let the truth come. Let it go on. Let the Spirit of God lead them all the way way to truth. Let there be a people that don't even know 
amen, about CTK O'Fallon, that don't even know about Jesus' name baptism. Let there be people that open up their Bible and say, God, I want to know you. Let there be people that get together and say, hey, pray. Let's pray about that. Let there be people. You know that's still happening. You do know that's still happening. That we are still falling upon or discovering communities of people in other parts of the world that literally opened up the Bible, have seen Jesus' name baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost and thought they were the only ones in the world because they were obeying the Bible of Jesus Christ. Man, God... Let it happen. Let it happen. However it happens. I don't care how it happens. Paul said, I just rejoice when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Note Paul's attitude. Note Paul's philosophy and all this stuff. He says, hey, I don't care what's going on. I don't care. Can I tell you, sometimes we, we can get very petty in the church. Can I just pause for a moment and do a little bit of pastoring here tonight? We can get petty in the church. And here was Paul saying, we have criticism. Some are saying, well, I'm envious of you and I'm jealous of you. And he said, hey, I don't care. Christ is being preached. There will always be envy and strife in the church. There will always be envy and strife in the church. You don't believe that? Just let somebody sing a solo. Well, I didn't get to sing the solo. Well, I can sing the solo better than they can. Why? I've never said, and that's because we're human beings. And somebody says, well, I ought to sing a solo. And so, so then whatever reason, they get to sing a solo. And they're saying, well, I sang that solo better than they sang that solo. And you've got these little petty contentions. You know what Paul says? He said, I'm not concerned about that. I'm just happy that the name of the Lord is being lifted up, that God's being exalted, that God's being magnified, and he's being worshipped. Can I tell you, I'm not worried about all that stuff. That stuff comes and goes, but we ought to thank God, hallelujah, that the name of Jesus Christ is being magnified and exalted. Don't worry about all that stuff. Maybe you can play better than them, or you can do something better than somebody else, but you ought not worry about that. Just rejoice that God is being exalted and God is being lifted up. There will always be a better preacher than me. There will always be a better singer than me. There will always better be a better piano player than me. Whatever you want to pick in the church, somebody's going to come along. Somebody can do it better. But it's not about that. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Oh, I wish somebody clap your hands unto the Lord. I'm thankful, hallelujah, that his truth still is marching on. And so Paul goes on here. Not what, notwithstanding every way. He says, I rejoice for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He goes on, according to my earnest expectation and to my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. And so Paul is talking about this crisis that he has. Whether it be by life or by death. This is how serious Paul felt about this. This is how dedicated Paul was to this idea. This was how focused. Everybody say focus. Focus Paul was. Can I tell you, that's, that's a large part, I think. And this is nothing that you wouldn't know. But this is a large part that I think the church of today deals with. And that's distractions. To focus on what really matters. Paul says it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if I'm living or if I'm dying. 
We can get so hung up on the little things sometimes in life. We can get so hung up on the little details. The hiccups of life, our career, we need, we need to make money. We, we need to survive, and I understand all that stuff's before us. But can I tell you, in the, in the broad scheme of eternity, that stuff pales in comparison. Be a plumber, be a lawyer, be a welder, be a pilot, be whatever you want to be. God doesn't care about that. It doesn't really matter. Make a living, be faithful, be a good steward, put God first. God doesn't really care. about And that doesn't really matter whether you live or whether you die. Let Christ be magnified. Let God be glorified. And he comes down, and this is the key verse. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What matters if I die out serving God? All I get to do is enter into His rest and His glory sooner. All I get to do is enter into the power of God. You say, well, there's still things in life I want to accomplish. Well, yes, in my flesh there are things, but can I tell you, I know in my spirit, I know because of the Word of God that there is nothing in the flesh that I could accomplish and achieve that will even compare <laughs> to one moment in the glory of the Lord. So Paul says later on, he said, it doesn't matter. I reckon that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed. It doesn't matter what I do, what I go through, what I'm withheld from. Sometimes we say, well, God, it's not fair. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm going through. God, it's not fair. Paul, his attitude didn't even enter into that area. Paul says, I thank God for everything that's going on. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He said, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul says, I know God has a purpose for me, and so I'm coming to you again. This is why he picked up the pen. He said, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be with Christ. But God has a purpose for me, and so I'm going to joy in this where I'm at. We can be careful because sometimes we can pray away the very thing that God wants to bring us through to use us. Is that all right? We can say, God, I'm praying against this. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I was Paul and sitting in prison, I'd probably call a prayer and fasting chain to get out of prison. Paul didn't do it. He said, no, God knows where I'm at. <laughs> I don't need to pray. I don't need to fast. God, God's got all this going on. I might die tomorrow. They may come in and say, you're done. You're next. And he said, and if I do, that's gain. I get to be with Christ. He said, but it's probably not because I've got some things. I've got some letters to write. I've got some people to pray for. I've got some people to witness to and testify. And so here I am. And he wasn't praying his situation out. He was saying, hey, look at what God has done because of where I'm at. Can I tell you, there is such a blessing when we can have such a focused mind that our ailments, that our sicknesses, that our shortcomings, that our peripheral circumstances don't even affect us anymore. It's just about Christ. 
The petty things, we come into church and say, well, God, you blessed that person. Look at the car they're driving. Look at the things they're doing. God, here I am. I've been faithful, but God, here, you know, you've sort of forgotten about me. Paul wasn't saying that. Paul wasn't saying that. He's saying, God, I thank you. No matter what you do, where you put me, I am where you want me to be. So Paul's attitude and philosophy was, I'm in the will of God, and I'm going to have joy. And can I tell you, if you have given your life to God, you ought to rest in that peace and that confidence saying, I'm in the will of God and I have joy. I'm going to joy in what God has brought in my life. We need to let the joy of the Lord be renewed in our life. Get the joy of the Lord back. We were preaching Sunday morning, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David had lost it. He had stepped outside of it into sin. But there are those who haven't gone back, who haven't entered into sin, but, but we've lost focus. And the joy of the Lord ceases to be our strength. And can I tell you, there is a strength that comes when the joy of the Lord becomes our focus. Sister Greathouse, your son was here over the Christmas holiday. And he pastors in Homestead. And he lives in the last city, in the southern part of the tip of Florida, that you will cross before you head out into the Keys. And you begin the long trek down the series of islands in southern Florida. And of course... If you've looked at the map over the last week, that's been the one place <laughs> in the entire state that still has sunshine. Has anybody looked at the windchill map and you think it's crazy everywhere else? Except for that bottom part of Florida. There they are. Still got sunshine, still got heat. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in Florida right now? I mean, praise God. I feel the call of God. It's the will of God. And we're joking about this. We were talking about it. We were laughing a little bit. And, and he was, you know, just sharing something. He said, yeah, you know, it's amazing how many evangelists feel the will of God to hold a revival in the wintertime. <laughs> I said, well, I might feel the will of God to come down and hold your revival too, you know, kind of thing. It's the will of God. So often we confuse what we want and what feels good with the will of God. <laughs> God, this is what I want. Oh, this is the will of God. Nice day, barbecue, sitting outside. This is the will of God. Come on, anybody else said that besides me? This is the will of God. Amen, amen. This, can I tell you, that, that, that may be the will of God, but that may not be the will of God. And that crazy, frustrating place that you're in right now may actually be the will of God. And so Paul says, I'm going to advance the gospel no matter whether I'm in chains, no matter whether I've got critics, or no matter whether I'm in crisis, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to go on. And finally, he closes out the end with three more verses, and he brings us to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 27, he says, Only let your conversation... Be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he closes out this chapter with faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's letting us know, have faith. Not fear, because in verse 28 he says, and in nothing terrified by your 
adversaries. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Have faith. And so there's three things that he gives to us that we should have faith in. The first is what the Old English says, conversation. It's our conduct. It's not how we talk. It's how we walk. It's the walk that we have in Christ. Our conduct. The first thing is our conduct, how we conduct ourselves. And he says the way you conduct yourself should be as one that is worthy to be called a Christian. Can I ask you this question? Are you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of being called a Christian? Christ is, is, is saying this. Paul is speaking to us. Have faith in Christ. And, and let your conversation be such as is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think enough can be said about our conduct. Because it doesn't matter what your mouth says if your actions don't follow it up. The, final, the, the next thing he talks about here is what we would call cooperation. And he says this, when I hear of your affairs, your affairs, he says, let it be that ye stand in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One spirit, one mind striving together. Cooperation. Folks, we are not in a contest. We are not in a competition. We are on the same side. And you're not going to get a larger prize because you make it before me. In fact, you'll get a better prize the more you bring with you, the more you lift up. There'll be more joy, more fulfillment, more satisfaction, not only in this life, but the blessing in the life to come of knowing that I had a part in all of these people. Cooperation, can I tell you, unity, amen, unity is a powerful thing in the body of Christ. Division still destroys faith. And Paul's letting us know, if you want to have faith in God, it's got to be manifest in your conduct and it's got to be manifest in your cooperation. There's not room for division. There's not room for division in a marriage. There's not room for division in a family. And there certainly is not room for division in the church. You say, well, I, I, I don't like the same way that you like everything. I, I like different food than you like. I like to decorate different than you. I like that's, that's because we're individuals and we won't have to agree on everything. But there's no reason to allow division into a church. You say, do churches really split because somebody moved the piano from one side to the other side? And somebody says a resounding yes. It's not about the piano. It was about something else. But can I tell you, there's no room for divisions in the kingdom of God. And this is what Paul was saying. And the final thing he leaves us with is confidence. He says, faith in God, it's going to be manifest in your confidence. And this would be my prayer for you. And Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi, he says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given 
in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. If I read that in the MEV, it says it this way, Do not be frightened by your adversaries. This is a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and this from God. He's letting us know that the battle, the conflict, the struggles that we endure ought to build confidence in you because it proves that we are the children of God and that we are saved. That's why you have struggles. Christ said it this way. You'll be hated of all men for my namesake. If they hated me, they will also hate you. And can I tell you, if we as Christians make peace with this culture, we will cease to become the sons of God. And if the culture will make peace with us, <laughs> then either they've had a total revival or we're not really who we should be in Christ. And Paul says the battle proves we are saved. And furthermore, the conflict is a privilege. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ. The MEV says, for to you it was granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What an honor. James said, I count it all joy. Count it joy to suffer with Christ. Count it joy to be to be brought among the number. Why? Because it means I'm doing something right. It means I'm a part of something that's greater. I'm a part of something that's bigger, amen, than what's going on. Stand, stand together with me tonight. And finally, he closes with this last verse. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says this of your confidence. The battle proves we're saved. The conflict is a privilege. And I want to let you know another reason why you ought to have confidence in Christ is because you are not alone. Can I tell somebody tonight, you're not alone? You're not alone in the battle. You're not alone in the fight for faith. You are not alone in your struggle against temptation. You are not alone in dealing with things. We may think sometimes, I'm the first person to ever deal with this situation. Woe is me! I feel that way sometimes in the middle of the night when Luca will not stop slapping me in the face. I'm like, oh God, will we ever sleep again? Will we ever go to bed before, I think it was 1.30 last night, fighting that battle, trying to keep him in his crib? And you think, oh, but can I tell you, there's been thousands and millions and billions and trillions that have gone on before me in this same path. And that's why they invented bedrooms with doors on them. Can I tell you, in your struggle with your walk with God, you're not the first person to ever deal with this. You're not the first person to have to subdue the flesh. You're not the first person to fight loneliness. You're not the first person to say, hey, I'm feeling rejected. You're not the first person to feel estranged from things. Amen. But Paul says you ought to have confidence because there are others that even now are doing the same thing and they also are victorious. You ought to have confidence that God is going to finish what he started in you. And I don't know about you, but I thank God 
It's time that we get so focused on Christ. It's time that I bring my mind so focused in Christ that I'm not worried about my circumstances. I'm not going to let my circumstances dictate my praise. I'm not going to let them predicate my commitment to the Lord. But like Paul, give me an attitude and a philosophy for life that says I can still have joy. No matter what people say, no matter what I endure, no matter what goes on, I can still have joy at the end of my life. And if Paul can do it, then how much more ought we to be able to do it? Can we lift our hands towards the Lord tonight?